Production support for Noon Edition comes from Smithville. Fiber internet, streaming TV, home security, and automation in southern Indiana. More information at smithville.com. And from Integrity First Insurance, provider of Erie Insurance for all your auto, home, life, and business insurance needs. More information at 812-269-8897 or integrityfirstinsuranceservices.com. And from Bloomington Health Foundation, partnering with local organizations and citizens to invest in programs that address our community's health needs. Bloomington Health Foundation, improving health and well-being takes a community. More at bloomhf.org. Welcome to Noon Edition. I'm your host, Bob Zaltzberg. We're talking with our guests about the Bloomington Fire Department's controlled burn of a house on South High Street today. Paint flakes that tested positive for lead scattered across the neighborhood, the nearby neighborhood, and eventually it has led to what uh, is now about a two-week remediation. My co-host is Sarah Whitmire, the News Bureau Chief of WFIU-WTIU, and we have four guests with us today. We have Jason Moore, the Bloomington Fire Department Chief, Leah Wood, who's an IUPUI researcher in the Department of Earth and Atmospheric Sciences, Matt Murphy is a resident in the area near the burn, and Mary Catherine Carmichael is the Director of Public Engagement in the Bloomington Office of the Mayor. If you have comments for us, you can send them to news at indianapublicmedia.org. And you can also follow us on Twitter at Noon Edition. We were having some technical difficulties with Chief Jason Moore, but I think he's here with us now. So, Jason, good to have you here with us. Yeah, thank you for having me. Absolutely. So I want you to start out and talk about um, the importance of doing um, an exercise like this and, and the precautions that you took before you burned this house. Well, I, I appreciate the question. So you know, we do have a training facility, um, but there is only so many evolutions you can run in it before you memorize the, the layout. Fire does not move the same way through that building as it does in a real one. So, you know, an opportunity like this to use an acquired structure is, is the closest thing we can get to real life training uh, that is available. Um, prior to doing this, and I, I do want to point out that, you know, we had 94 of our firefighters uh, receive training that week, um, and a lot of them are brand new and have never been in a real house fire, so it was important. Um, but, you know, we went through uh, a lot of uh, checks and balances that are required in the state. Uh, IDEM, uh, the Indiana Department of Environmental Management, they are required by, by law to sign off on this. Uh, so they come out, they do an inspection, they tell us what needed to be remediated. Um, that was removing all the siding, carpets, roofing. Um, we had to remove light bulbs. We even had to remove uh, things like the thermostats because they had mercury in them. And, you know, as I said in my, my public presentation the other day, unfortunately, that checklist did not include lead paint. Um, so beyond that, uh, we do not do these very often. In fact, I think it's been over a decade since the last one. We checked with uh, a lot of people that do this quite often. In fact, um, several entities that they don't have a training facility and they'll, they'll do this three to five times a year uh, to meet all the minimum requirements for being a firefighter and maintaining your, your credentialing. All right. I, I should mention also Mary Catherine Carmichael is a resident of the neighborhood as well. But before I get to Mary Catherine, I want to go to Matt Murphy because Matt, you uh, went down to watch the fire, right? And then you discovered some things that, that made you kind of wonder what was happening. So can you explain how you get, got involved with this? Uh, yes, Bob. I walked down shortly after the fire had started. I lived close enough that I was able to see the uh, fire from my home office and joined a, a pretty sizable group of onlookers. And uh, at that point, the uh, fire was sort of up through the uh, roof rafters and roof decking. And at the point that it sort of dropped down into the main house uh, and the side, wood siding, which was painted, obviously, began to burn, I got a, uh, sadly, a familiar whiff, which is uh, lead paint um, back many years ago when I did a lot of uh, house painting and, and paint removal and used a heat gun, sadly, 
um, it's a smell you don't forget. And uh, shortly after I got that uh, smell in my nose and I, I noticed that white debris and chips and ash were starting to rain down on the area to the west of the fire and uh, became increasingly alarmed. And I ran back to my house and grabbed a Ziploc bag and grabbed some of those chips that were abundant and everywhere and went to the paint store and tested them with a uh, 3M lead test kit. And that did indicate that there was uh, lead in the chips that I had picked up. So at that point I did, uh, I think I called uh, the deputy fire chief, Washell, and uh, told him what I'd discovered and then returned to the uh, site itself and attempted to alert one of the firefighters, but um, I, that didn't go over very well. Well, so, let, me, let me ask uh, Chief Moore, um, did you, when did you learn that there might be an issue? I think by the, the records I've got, um, it was about 1030, uh, 1035, somewhere around there that we, I, I got the first notification from Chief Washell. Um, it was pretty close to that time. I also got a, a message from the mayor's office that there had been a complaint. Um, so by that time, though, the house had already basically fallen in um, and was, you know, in the basement burning. So um, it was pretty much by the end of the burn when there was nothing that could have been done about it is, is when I got the first notification of it. Okay, so Leah Wood, so what, what do we know now about, um, you know, what was in the material that was going up um, from the burn and uh, any effect that it could have on the, the neighborhood? Yeah, absolutely. So the lead paint chips that we have tested in my lab um, have been about 10 to 12% lead. Um, and so any, any solid, like recognizable paint chips, uh, no matter how far from the fire, they are, are right about 10 or 12% lead. Um, and the distribution area, the uh, plume from this event seems to go about a half mile west of uh, the burn site. Um, and it stops or uh, tends to, it looks like it kind of peters out around is that Highland Avenue there, about a half mile west of the burn site. And um, we don't know exactly yet what the, what the sort of edges are of the, of the site, of the plume. Um, the testing is ongoing, uh, but the primary direction of dispersal was west, um, and uh, so it will not have traveled as far north, south, and especially not east as it did west of that burn site. So that's what we're looking at so far, and we are finding, unfortunately, that the lead paint chips, which began as you know, pretty, pretty large visible flakes of paint, are beginning to deteriorate and we're finding um, elevated levels of lead um, in, in um, the, the dust and in the very surface level of soil as well. Mary Catherine Carmichael, former co-host of Noon Edition. Thanks for being here with us today. Um, Mary Catherine, so from the city's perspective, you've done uh, a lot of things since the burn. I know you put out a map of an area that um, is affected. You've got people, you've hired remediation companies. Can you talk about the, the uh, city's response? Sure, and thanks for the opportunity to be here. And it's super weird to be on the other side of the table, so to speak. <laughs> but uh, great to hear your voice. I had a little flashback when you started out today, Bob. It was kind of cool. Um, yeah, so, you know, the, the response began, uh, you know, the chief mentioned uh, getting word of this at between 1030 and 1035. And I'm going to say that the response started about 1036. So uh, we, we uh, kind of bolstered our, our folks together and started looking into this um, immediately um, by the next morning. Um, Chief was out in the neighborhood, as was I, um, going door to door, working on communications, um, bringing uh, the folks we needed to together to uh, 
create a door flyer for those folks uh, who we tried to contact and, and weren't available. Uh, we quickly set up a website with information and we've continued to update that uh, with information as it's become available. So uh, our response started just about the same time the fire was put out. Well, I know um, you live in the, in the affected area. Have you had your house remediated? I do live in the affected area. Uh, I live, um, I, you know, I, I noticed um, uh, Ms. Wood said that the area went as far as Highland. That I walked the neighborhood um, all weekend. That I didn't necessarily see that myself, although I'm not calling her into question. I'm just saying what I actually witnessed. Um, and no, I have not had my house remediated. Um, the winds are a funny thing. And when I walked my own yard, even though I'm Matt knows where I live, I'm, I'm very close. Um, I did not see any visible signs of uh, lead paint chips and did not feel that therefore it was necessary for uh, anybody to come and, and remediate my home. So full disclosure, if I can chime in here and Bob, I hope you don't mind, but I know you live in that area as well. So I guess the same question for you before we switch topics here. Well, interesting, you know, I, I'm, I am on the host side, but, uh, you know, Mary Catherine knows where I live and I did have paint chips, um, on my car and in our driveway, but I'm considered outside of the area. I sent, uh, we sent a note to the city to ask for remediation and we're, we're turned down for that. So I guess my my question based on that would be, um, you know, how was the remediation area determined? I think I may be one of the better ones to answer that. Um, so we went out right after the fire and started doing the, the damage assessment, so to speak, you know, walking, uh, tracking it. Um, IDEM provided a map of what, where they had taken 16 samples from. Um, I contacted uh, Mr. Murphy and asked for his data points where he had collected samples from. And so really, you know, the, the kind of getting this all geared up and, and getting it all together, um, I, I think it was fair to say that maybe some of the bigger things had already broken down by then. Um, you know, obviously, uh, you know, when you're coming out with the professionals, uh, it took us a few days to get the environmental contractors on online. Um, some things may have broken down, but we stuck to what we could see visible. Uh, we did do surface wipe testing to determine if there was the lead dust and um, you know, really tried to refine the edges of the map so that we knew what could be remediated um, and then really where, where we could do any kind of good at this point. Um, so that, that has been um, one of the main three problems we had at the very beginning, which is you know, how, big, how big is it? Um, and I think knowing what we know now with all the test results we've gotten back from the environmental contractors, we feel very comfortable in the area that is being remediated. Uh, we're not going to say that every single paint chip has been picked up or that there's not going to be a paint chip that, you know, drifted further outside of that area. But the area of concern was the ones with the highest, uh, you know, count of paint chips, which there's really about six homes that had a, a pretty significant you know, it almost looked like it had snowed on their, uh, on their property with the amount of paint chips. And then when you got away from that, it, it drastically reduced the amount and the, uh, the level of visible debris. So we got a question here, I believe from Mary. I'm sorry, that's not correct, from Sarah. And Jason, maybe you can chime in first on this. But Sarah asks, who is in charge of the remediation effort and with whom does the buck actually stop? I think you know, if it comes down to the responsibility, uh, the, the company's answer to, to me, I am the project coordinator for the city, but I don't want people to think that I'm telling them what, what has to happen. I have asked them for their advice. I am taking their advice. We're going with what, what they say needs to be done and how far we go. Um, so I, I guess I'm the project coordinator. I will be the one that, you know, files the reports. I will be the one that, um, you know, has to answer for the expenses. So I guess, Simply, it, it's me. Uh, the, the buck will stop with me on this, but I am getting all of the best help I can from the environmental professionals to make good decisions about this. I know we had a question uh, before. I, I guess I'll address it to Mary Catherine. Is there was um, initial conversations with ServPro 
And then mm -hmm. the city decided or, or wound up going with an Indianapolis-based company, Environmental Assurance Company, and a Bloomington-based uh, VET Environmental Engineering. How did, uh, you know, how did you wind up with those two companies after the initial conversation with SurfPro? Yeah, that was kind of a, a quickly evolving situation. Um, uh, when we first reached out to SurfPro, and, and Chief Moore, I hope you'll please correct me if I get any of this wrong, but when we first reached out to SurfPro for assistance, uh, they thought that that would be something they'd be uh, happy to help us with. And then uh, as time went on, uh, and this by time, I mean, you know, maybe 36 hours, um, and bear in mind, a lot of this was happening over a weekend, which is difficult because uh, folks are kind of harder uh, are more difficult to get to reach over a weekend in many cases. Um, but as time passed, um, they thought that, well, you know, maybe this isn't work we want to do. Maybe we don't have um, the skill set. I, I have heard that uh, people uh, thought that the city backed away from a contract with SurfPro because of a cost uh, differential, that is absolutely not the case. We were absolutely committed to SurfPro until uh, they let us know that they wouldn't be do doing the work. And so I have to give a lot of credit to Chief Moore, who very quickly pivoted and um, was able to line up the two companies with whom we ended up uh, doing business and uh, are quite pleased with their performance. Yeah. I, I don't know if it's appropriate. I, I do want to uh, just plug in a little part of this. Um, when, when we went out and researched who could do this, uh, no one really had done this before. So I don't want, I don't want people to think that, you know, necessarily SurPro backed out. It, it was an unknown. Um, they, they wanted to provide um, extra, extra thing. It was really going to delay. And we were more interested in trying to get this done as quickly as possible with people that, that could. Um, IDEM actually reached out with a list of vendors that they have similar experience. The company that was selected, they've done this in the past. Uh, they had a fire in Indianapolis that rained asbestos down on an area, and they were contracted for that cleanup. Um, so in, in the long run, we were really just trying to get this done as quickly as possible, trying to beat the rain that was coming later that week. Um, and, you know, SurPro just, they, they had a lot of things in their way to they, they didn't feel comfortable doing it uh, without getting those things checked off. And we really wanted to make sure this was done as, as quickly, but as, you know, properly as, as it could be done. We're talking with uh, Bloomington Fire Chief uh, Jason Moore, uh, Mary Catherine Carmichael, Director of Public Engagement in the Bloomington Office of the Mayor, as well as Matt Murphy, who is a resident in the area of, uh, of the community that's been affected by a uh, controlled burn that uh, rained down some lead 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 paint chips, and also Leah Wood, an IUPUI researcher in the Department of Earth and Atmospheric Sciences, who has uh, looked at those chips in her laboratory. So um, we are talking to those four people today. If you have questions or comments about this issue that's been in the news now for about a week, or maybe a little longer than a week send them to us at news at indianapublicmedia.org. And you can also follow us on Twitter at Noon Edition. So Matt Murphy and Leah Wood, you've uh, been listening to the um, comments from our city representatives about the reaction. And I, I think it's probably fair to say that even though the training was necessary, perhaps necessary and, and had some value that probably would like to have a do-over for this, but, uh, and you got, you can correct me if I'm wrong on that too, but I think Jason, you pretty much said that. Um, but Leah and, and Matt, are you satisfied with uh, the cleanup efforts and um, should, is, are, is the community overreacting the people that have um, been affected by this? Is there an overreaction or do you think that it's uh, uh, in proportion? And Leah, I want to start with you. First of all, uh, I want to say that I, I have not heard anyone, uh, I think, overreacting. Um, this is a big deal. Um, and I, if I lived in that neighborhood, I would be reacting similar, similarly. And um, as a lead researcher myself, I would be very concerned. Okay, Matt. Uh Back to the initial question about the usefulness of the uh, controlled burn. Let me address that first. 
I, I do agree that especially the new firefighters, the controlled burns within the house in the week leading up to this event were I think probably really valuable and useful trading exercises. I think, as I said to you, Jason, that the actual final demolition by incineration was the least useful and most destructive of those training exercises. So, and I'm equally concerned about the exposure of the firefighters as I am about uh, my neighborhood and my neighbors and our yards. Um, as far as the reaction, I think we're all pretty uh, upset and stressed out. It's It's been a difficult week. Um, and I think everybody, there's a full range of reactions and I think everybody's reactions are reasonable given the seriousness of the situation. No, we talked, uh, we, we being the radio station, uh, one of the reporters talked to Gabe Filippelli, who's um, the head of the Environmental Resilience Institute at IU. And he said his, his first thoughts was that there could be um, overreaction. But then when he actually saw the results of the, the studying the paint chips that, that he thought uh, absolutely not. There was no overreaction. So um, Mary Catherine or Jason, I, I suggested that you might um, prefer to have not done this. Am I, was I being accurate, Jason? Absolutely. Um, you know, when it comes down to it, the fire service, we, we're here to help people. Um, you know, there was some value to the, <clears throat> the final burn. Um, you know, I've, I've mentioned this in the past that, you know, with the density of the, the, city here. Uh, the defensive tactics that we had to use uh, and otherwise besides the lead uh, ash, this was a really successful fire. Not a single tree uh, was singed around the property. And that those are very valuable things that you don't have a training prop to practice. I mean, those are things that we would have to know how to do. With all that being said, knowing what I know today, uh, I absolutely uh, would never do this again. In fact, that's that was the promise I made at the Board of Public Safety meeting is, um, you know, today we, we get this corrected and lead paints now on a checklist. But what's the next hazard that wasn't on the checklist? Uh, there is no no way that I could in good conscience do this again, knowing that it has put people in harm. And that that goes against all of our life work. Right. Firefighters never do uh, harm to people. And when something like this happens, we've got to do everything we can to make it right and to, to you know, correct it. So. And I think it is worth noting that uh, Chief Moore has uh, reached out to IDEM and encouraged them to, by all means, you know, add lead paint to the list of things that they check for um, when they go through their uh, list of, of required actions before they approve a controlled burn. So um, I know that's cold comfort to folks who are concerned uh, with what has already happened, but uh, it is somewhat of a silver lining and, and certainly a lesson learned. Matt, I know you got this lead, these paint chips tested right away, but I'm just wondering about other fires, you know, in, in when you've done controlled burns before, could this have been happening, but there was no Matt Murphy who went and got these, these paint chips tested. I know uh, Leah and I discussed this a bit yesterday. Uh, she and John from her lab brought a group of students down and we walked the neighborhood uh, and uh, we're sort of inspecting the uh, area that's been cleaned up uh, and unfortunately found plenty of lead paint debris still on the ground and under the wet leaf litter. But as far uh, to answer your question, um, um, sorry, I'm, could you, Sarah, could you repeat the gist of your question again? Yeah, I mean, I guess it's maybe not, it was- I just walked in and distracted me. <laughs> oh, that's okay. It, it was probably, you know, well, Jason, maybe chime in Oh, too, the but, previous, yes, you know, previous I'm, burn, in, but in we- Controlled yes. burns, we-, we yeah, sorry. Yeah, I've we hear about them being done in other places, and I'm just wondering, has this happened before, but there was no one like you who took samples? Yes, and I think certainly this has. I've talked to plenty of people who have recalled uh, practice burns in areas that they lived in, um, and I think Lee and I also discussed, uh, you know, the, maybe the good that might come from this would be a lesson learned for IDEM for the city of Bloomington, and hopefully changes uh, will be forthcoming in local and state ordinances. Um, but I think every structural fire releases some sort of toxins. 
Uh, and the older the structure, the more likely it is to have lead paint, but there's all sorts of other things, asbestos, uh, mercury, uh, any fire, even if it's just firewood releases toxins. So. Jason, I, I know that this does happen in, you know, a lot of different cities. Um, so it, it's not really an unusual thing to do, correct? So what Matt was talking about, and I think to go to the heart of Sarah's question is this could have happened in other cities um, and there wasn't, you know, there wasn't somebody in the neighborhood because there's not Bloomington. There wasn't somebody in the neighborhood that was paying close attention to it. Yeah, absolutely. This this does happen uh, not only in Indiana. It happens all over the country. Fire departments uh, don't generally have the resources to get, you know, top top quality training facilities. Uh, there are requirements to do uh, annual burns to maintain your certifications and things like that. Um, but to to speak to the effect of a, a real structure fire, the house that that was burned had a vast majority of the known toxins removed from it. Um, so if you could imagine if that had been an accidental fire that we responded to, um, it, it would have had a lot more that it could have rained down. Um, you know, several years ago, there was the carpet store fire. Uh, we know that when carpet burns, it releases a lot of toxins. So, you know, we do know that fires uh, do release toxins. And I would say that in my 21 years, that was the cleanest structure fire I've ever seen, uh, if that puts it in perspective. So we, we are now aware. And when we talk about lessons learned, it's not just about the controlled burn, you know, controlling fallout, controlling ash. Uh, you know, we, we focus on life safety. We focus on putting out the fire. Um, and in our textbooks from the very beginning of our firefighter training, there's, there's what they call priorities. And one of them is people, then property, then environment. And I think this is going to weigh in on, you know, how we handle things in the future, looking at the environmental impact of fires that will, quite frankly, be way worse than what this one was. Um, when they're accidental and they're, they haven't been properly mitigated with any sort of mitigation before it's burnt. I think to, to follow up on this, and Mary Catherine, I'm going to address this to you. I think one of the things that that has had me scratching my head since this began is that Bloomington is uh, such an environmentally conscious community where you know, there's there's no burning inside the, the city. I mean, no, individuals can't burn anything within the city in a trash can or anything like that. The city council is forever trying to reduce the number of cars that are on the streets because they're trying to reduce greenhouse gases. And, you know, as, as Jason said, I'm, I mean, anytime there's a, a structure fire, even though this was the cleanest he's ever seen, there's going to be, you know, some risk of something going into the air that um, really shouldn't be there. And in a city like Bloomington that prides itself so much and it's an environmental stewardship um i i'm guess i'm just curious how this kind of a fire fit in with uh you know with that overall those overall goals yeah that's a really reasonable question and i'm i'm really glad you brought it up because it it is at the at face value it's kind of a head scratcher like why would they put why would they burn anything ever and there is a good reason for that you know he jason mentioned i think over 90 firefighters were were trained on this exercise and what we're doing is taking the long view you know we have an excellent fire department there they have an iso rating of 1 which is the highest you can get one of two departments in the state that have that Chances are, or chances are good that your uh, uh, homeowner's insurance is going to go down as a result of, of their excellent work and, and receiving that rating. But one of the reasons they are able to have that kind of a rating is because of the ongoing training that they have. So I, I believe the thought behind this was, you know, because we're going to be able to train so many people and they're going to learn so much in this, what we assumed was going to be a relatively clean burn they're going to be able to deal more efficiently, more quickly, and better with future fires that will not have the benefit of having had the thermostats removed, the siding removed, the carpet removed. Uh, so it's it's kind of a, a you know a long term way to look at it, um, but we really felt that uh, in the long run this would be a benefit to the community and um, be worth uh, the the amount of, of smoke that was created. Again, you know, that's, that was <laughs> before we knew uh, what was going to transpire, but, but that was the thought process behind it, that the training was, was worth 
um, the burn and that in fact, it would likely shorten other fires in the future. Thank you for that. And Jason, if you could follow up on that, I mean, can you sort of explain to me what's one thing that you may have learned from this that will help you shorten other fires in the future? Yeah, absolutely. Um, when it comes down to any type of fire, uh, learning how fire moves through a building is important. Um, so what, what we did learn, and again, we're gonna publish an entire, uh, what we call an after action review. Any fire in Bloomington, we go through that and we report what went well, what could have gone better. Um, but what we do know uh, just from the, the week long training is that um, you know, our newer firefighters learned uh, that the gear that they have, how it can protect them. We learned how fire travels um, when, you know, a lot of people say we're brave because we run into burning buildings. It is a very calculated risk and you can't learn some of those, uh, how to calculate those risks without actually witnessing those issues. So, you know, for fire officers that have to make decisions on limited information, um, you know, they got a lot of really good experience on reading the smoke. They got good experience on uh, how, how the smoke travels. Uh, we also, when everything's out, we, we learn how to evacuate all of those toxins and create a pocket of, of what we refer to as uh, an area where life can, can exist. So everything that was done, the evolutions, um, really added value to uh, what, what we can read in a book or watch in a video. And again, we practice it at our training tower, but the, the fire doesn't move through a metal building like it does through a regular building. Hey, hey, Jason, I know people are have mentioned their concern about the health of our firefighters. Um, would you address that real quickly, please? Yes, absolutely. So uh, in addition to, we, we do annual physicals, which do include blood draws that look for uh, all types of toxins, not just lead, uh, all types of heavy metal. Uh, we have been working with the health department um, to get the ability to do the finger stick blood test. Um, so we are going to offer that to the firefighters first, and then we're going to kind of work our way out. Uh, one reason is we want to make sure we're really good at doing the blood test before we try to go out into the community. I just did them this morning, and it's, it's a lot harder to get blood out of a fingertip than you realize. Um, so we are going to do that, but it is a part of their annual physicals as well. Um, so we would have baselines on all the firefighters that were there. Um, I will tell you as an experienced firefighter, we do look at the color and, and type of smoke that lets us know kind of what's going on. Um, I was present the entire time and what we did not see is the yellow green haze, which is what uh, has been described as what you would see if you were atomizing a lot of lead. Um, so, you know, that, that to us, there's not a lot of concern, but we are gonna follow up with those concerns and we are gonna get testing done. And we, we routinely test our firefighters um, for all the various hazards that they're exposed to throughout their careers. I wanna follow that with uh, Leah Wood and if you could talk about what you see as risk um, to people who may have been in that area. And I know that we've, uh, I think it might've been Gabe Filippelli or may have, I, I, I can't remember which one of the experts said that uh, people should be wary of their dogs, uh, their kids, probably their kids first, and then their, their animals um, being out and getting into a lot of this. I mean, how concerned would you be if you lived in this area? How concerned should Matt Murphy be? Yeah, that's that's the real question, right? Um, so first of all, anyone can be at risk of lead poisoning, uh, but really children are the most vulnerable among us for multiple reasons. Uh, one of those just being that they're closer to the ground uh, and because they put their hands in their mouths. Uh, unfortunately, lead paint tastes extremely sweet. Um, and so that's why you've probably heard of children uh, eating lead paint chips or peeling paint. Uh, so that's really the first concern. Uh, the other reason children are so vulnerable is because their bodies are so efficient. They actually absorb uh, into their bloodstreams much more of the lead that they ingest or inhale than an adult's body would. Um, so children really are the primary concern uh, and the mo most vulnerable here. Um, but of course, pets um, and adults as well. Um, 
Lead causes uh, lifelong um, consequences. It hinders brain development. There's another reason children are more vulnerable. Their brains are still developing. So lead hinders brain development. Um, and when you have like a, a, a large um, lead poisoning event like this, the lead becomes stored in bones and that, that storage is long-term and the lead leaches out slowly over the years into the bloodstream. Um, and there's not a single major organ in the body that lead poisoning doesn't harm. So it's truly a systemic problem physiologically. And Leah, one thing uh, we talked about yesterday uh, that people need to remember is that lead is a cumulative toxicant. So yes, maybe there's a low dose on the ground uh, per square foot, but it's, it's out there. And we all like to go out into our yards, our children play in them, our pets are out in the yards, we have gardens. Um, and so it's, it's disconcerting to know that maybe we're being repeatedly exposed to this sort of new lead that's been introduced into our neighborhood on top of the already sort of ambient or pre-existing lead that we would expect to find in the neighborhood. Um, and, and especially concerning for young children. And I, I did find, you know, I think it's probably uh, quite a, a small amount, but I did find lead paint debris and ash uh, well into the Eastern side of Bryan Park. And clearly that's an area where you find lots of lots of young children every and on the Saturday after the fire, the park was full because I was there walking the boulevard trying to find map out the area. So it is important to remember that it's it's not one and done just because the people have come through the neighborhood with with their shop vacs and vacuumed up the obvious big chips. There is still quite a bit of lead debris on the ground under the leaves and it's not going to go away anytime soon. Leah, I want to ask you a quick follow-up before we go to a couple of questions that our, our listeners have submitted, but Matt, you briefly mentioned vegetable garden. So I know we had gotten a question about that and is it going to be safe to plant a vegetable garden in the spring? That's a terrific question and a difficult one. Um, there have been a lot of studies uh, about uh, how much lead different vegetables and different plants can uptake while they're growing. Um, and the, the results, the findings are very mixed. There are some plants that are able to uptake a significant amount of lead while they're growing. Others don't really uptake lead, but it can just cling to the outside, cling to the little minute hairs on the leaves uh, of the plant or cling to the roots, that sort of thing. Um, and so without going through like a vegetable by vegetable list um, and getting into a lot of gray area, I do think that the most um, conservative thing to do at this point is if you still have any veggies um, in your garden, um, not to eat them. If they were already fully grown, fully developed at the time of the fire and like, you know, carrots that are fully grown and you just haven't pulled them out of the ground yet, um, you could wash them really well, peel them, etc., and eat them. I wouldn't eat any leafy greens out of the out of the garden uh, right now if I lived in the area of contamination. Um, but again, to err on the side of caution, certainly um, it would be it would be uh, most cautious to just not eat any of those. Our producer chimed in that sunflowers are perhaps a really bad one to eat. Not sure about that. I um, have heard that as well. I don't know. I don't know it from um, like a research study. I know it from having heard it from other people. So I'm not sure about that one off the top of my head, uh, but I know it's been um, considered for like uh, phytoremediation of lead contamination in soil. So my guess is those really um, uh, do uptake the lead. Um, but part of what makes this so complicated is um, just because sunflowers uptake uh, lead doesn't mean that the lead winds up in the seeds, which are the part that we eat. If the lead remains 
primarily in the stalk of the sunflower or, you know, the roots or something, then it could be that the seeds are not that contaminated with lead. So again, that's just an illustration of how complicated it gets. So most of these things with, um, with mitigating um, and minimizing uh, risk from uh, or the risk of lead poisoning, it really comes down to um, what you're willing to do yourself to minimize risk and what is like way too much effort to do. It's all very subjective and very personal. Yeah, I, I've been contacted by quite a few people in my neighborhood who have fairly large and well-established gardens and they are understandably really upset and trying to figure out what their options are. Uh, and I think Leah has given great advice. And I think unfortunately for many people, they're looking at ripping up some or all of their beds and possibly bringing in uh, a layer of new soil to plant into uh, in the spring. Uh, and that includes me. So, you know, I don't, I, it's, I don't feel comfortable maybe just eating a little bit of lead and I'd rather, I'd rather start off with some fresh soil at this point, I think, and know that I'm planting in uh, soil that's not contaminated. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's, I, I want to go to a question. I'm sorry, go ahead, Leah. I don't want, I didn't mean to cut you off. Oh, that's all right. Um, I, I just um, wanted to say that I live in a house that was built in 1940. I live in an older neighborhood um, and I'm a gardener myself. Um, and, you know, wanting to err on the side of caution, I decided to do my gardening in a raised bed um, with fresh compost um, rather than gardening directly in the ground because even without a recent fire in the neighborhood, um, because I live in an older neighborhood where there's been decades and decades of lead-based paint deteriorating um, from, from homes, my soil was at a level that was below uh, the EPA's threshold for safe gardening, but it was still a little higher than what made me comfortable. Um, so that just kind of speaks to Matt's point uh, about not wanting to eat even a little bit of lead. <laughs> sure. Uh, I want to go to a question here from Jennifer. Um, she says, will the city rethink what she calls the totally inadequate notification, which invoked an HT notice and postings at the library and at the health department. Jason, do you do you want to respond to that in the notification process? And yeah, um, absolutely. So you know, we we went by the letter of the law. Um, some of the Indiana laws may be a little antiquated, where you know you had to put a public notice in the library, but. You know, for, for us, we went about the notification process about not only what's required, but we thought about it from a fire standpoint. You know, if, if a neighbor looked out their window and saw a giant fire, we wanted to make sure they weren't upset. Um, so knowing what we know now, obviously, we probably would have gone further out, but we did go above and beyond what was required. Um, the, the property owner himself went out and talked to his uh, adjoining neighbors and said, this is going to happen. The fire department's going to be here. Um, you know, we went through and, and one of the one of the criteria that we had to look at was the proximity to the property line. Um, so there was two, two structures on that property and we elected to not even try uh, the smaller one because it was too close to the property line and we couldn't guarantee that it wouldn't uh, have a fire impact. So knowing all that, um, if again, I've already said, we're not gonna do this again, but you know, if we are doing anything um, that's out in the neighborhood, and we do routinely do other trainings and acquired structures that don't require fire, um, obviously, if it's going to make an impact, then we, we want to get proper notification out. Um, I think something else to consider on this is these opportunities are very rare, and they're often very short-timed. Um, you know, this one was one that was well-planned, but we do get notices every once in a while that, hey, this building's going to get knocked down next week. Would you like to do some training in it? And again, we don't do live fire, but we do we do routinely do trainings and, and structures right before they're torn down because a lot of what we do is destructive. So I guess the, the simple thing is, is we're not gonna ever do this again. So the thought of notification process isn't really in the forefront of what I'm doing right now, but uh, we obviously wanna be good stewards and we wanna be uh, communicative with our, our community and let them know what's going on. Jason, that's about a two and a half acre lot, isn't it? I think uh, at least an acre and a half, but it's it's definitely a very large lot. Um, and and 
perspective to what is around the area in, in Bloomington, it is a very large home lot. I want to get Matt's uh, perspective first on the next two comments that we got from uh, listeners. And then uh, Mary Catherine, your reaction to it would be uh, good to have. But Matt, this person says the neighborhood is not happy with the remediation. People are talking about lawsuits. I feel like this segment, I guess what our show today, has been all about how great the fire department is. We have toxic soil now. And then a second one says, I'm not interested in how important the burn was to training. I want to know why the cleanup was done so badly. Matt, do you agree that uh, remediation has not been good? I Unfortunately, I think, and Leah, feel free to chime in uh, since you've walked the neighborhood with me. I feel like it's almost an impossible cleanup. The uh, Eric uh, Ost from the Elm Heights Neighborhood Association mentioned it's, it's kind of like glitter. Uh, you know, once it's been spilled in your house or somewhere, you just keep finding it everywhere. Uh, and Leah and I did look around uh, and got down and lifted up the layer of wet leaves. And we looked in people's gardens, uh, on, in yards yesterday in areas that have been abated and treated. And we found plenty of lead paint. And so I, I agree with my neighbors that uh, I think the crew that's been out there they are using two to three gallon handheld shop vacs with HEPA filters and very small nozzles that are two to three inches in diameter. Uh, they're not really the right tool for this kind of job. And uh, people there, the uh, negative dust, I think I, I know they're all wearing a kind of a dust collection device. And I'm not surprised that the dust has tested uh, either, it's, I think it's been Jason, is that correct? There was no detectable lead. Um, the, everything is wet and lead dust settles fairly quickly, uh, but the lead is still on the ground. So I don't want people to be misled by the reports of these negative, uh, test results for the, uh, air quality tests, because that's not really the appropriate test for what we're dealing with at the moment. Leah, do you want to respond since you've been down here too? Yeah, that's, you know, I saw the same thing that Matt did and, you know, he's seen it uh, much closer and he's been watching it for, you know, two weeks now. Um, and I just got a glimpse yesterday, but what was a little bit um, disconcerting to me was, as Matt mentioned, lifting up, you know, uh, bushes and plants and finding those smaller lead paint chips on the ground underneath in areas that have already um, been addressed by the, um, the environmental crew. Uh, and then the other thing that was disconcerting was seeing, uh, as we were trying to collect paint chips, um, they're already starting to break down and it was very difficult to even pick them up. They would just disintegrate or like turn to mush. Um, and so the longer, the longer this takes, the more difficult it is to even pick up the lead paint at all. Mary Catherine, Jason, would you respond? Yeah, I'd, I'd like to take a chance at, at responding to this. So uh, I think we, we have to have a clear expectation of what is even possible. And I think you, you kind of hit it that uh, this is hard to do. Um, so, you know, again, we're, we're trying to do what is even possible, uh, but we are guided by test. So they are using the XRF gun, that uh, X-ray fluorescent gun uh, to do uh, site samples. They have taken uh, a lot of soil samples that we're hoping to get results back from. Uh, the wipe test that were done was done before it rained, before we had, you know, everything that, you know, so to say that it was washed down. Um, so the air sampling has been done, was done before the rain. And, you know, part of it is we wanted to make sure that while we we're doing cleanup, we weren't making it worse. And what, what we are seeing is that the paint flakes themselves are the hazard. Uh, is there a possibility, is it even in the realm of possibility to get every single one up? I, I think we all know the answer is I'm never going to get them all up. And, but what we do know is that we're going to get a, a clear, you know, sort of say bill of health. Uh, I think you mentioned it, that there is a, an acceptable level of lead according to uh, EPA. We're, we're not going to leave a property that is above a, a threshold limit of actionable limit um, when, when we're done. Uh, so, what I know from, from VET and, and our environmental cleanup, 
is that they are doing everything it can. When I do get a complaint that, you know, something hasn't been done well enough, um, I contact the companies and they go back out and they, they, they hit it again. They try it again. Um, so I've been out personally with uh, people that, that said that it wasn't good enough. Um, and even as of this morning, the worst hit home uh, in that neighborhood, you know, all these things, when they cool, they fall fairly quickly. Um, they're, they're happy with the service they've received now after they've come back out again. So I'm, I'm trying to balance what everybody wants with what is necessary. And we're relying on our experts to do testing and let us know that it is okay in the end. Two, two more things about testing. One is um, what's going to be the, uh, the plan for soil testing? Will you just test it a few weeks out or will there be longer term tests like a year from now, come back and test these soils? I, I think I'm going to have to go to our environmental experts and ask them what they would recommend. Um, you know, obviously, whatever, whatever the experts recommend is what we're going to be looking at. Um, and, and I've been guided well by them so far. Uh, I feel uh, it's lined up with a lot of the things that I've heard from the IU experts and others. So I, I feel that we're in a good place uh, to follow their recommendations. Um, and, and just whatever they say we need to do is, is kind of where we're at and what we're trying to do. So if, if after this is done, they say it'd be really good to test this a year from now or whatever, um, then, then that'll be something that maybe we consider at that point. Leo, is that some is that something you would recommend? Yes, absolutely. Um, and you know, we recommend that anyone who lives in an older home or in a neighborhood with a lot of older homes um, have their soil. Uh, tested for lead and have their household dust, just like the vacuum cleaner dust, um, uh, tested as well. And I have been so impressed by uh, the residents in this neighborhood so far. And my my experience and my involvement with them has been extremely uh, positive and encouraging to me as an example of what a community can uh, come together and accomplish. So as long as the residents of this area are, uh, are happy to continue to have me uh, involved, I, will, I would very much like to come back down and do uh, even more soil testing uh, next year um, and beyond and see, um, you know, what the long-term picture is like uh, for this neighborhood. And we're still distributing hundreds of soil uh, and, and dust uh, and paint chip um, kits uh, within the neighborhood. So those are available to local residents. And where can they get them if they want one? Um, right now, uh, we are getting some to the Environmental Resilience Institute um, at IU. Um, and I think those should be available uh, probably by tomorrow, maybe on the front porch. Um, and you can just go pick up a kit. It's called a bookworms kit. We actually designed them with kids in mind. And it's, it's, it's what we had on hand. Um, when, when this event happened, we don't recommend children actually do the collecting right now. So forgive the, you know, the child geared, uh, language and, you know, pictures on the kit, but, uh, yeah, they're called bookworms kits. And then Matt has a bunch of those kits at what as well. And he's been passing them out to his neighbors. Okay. We're running late. I got to Got to go right now. So thank you so much to thank you, everybody. Leo Wood, Matt Murphy, uh, Jason Moore, the fire chief. Mary Catherine Carmichael from the mayor's office. For Benta Boutier and Holden Abshire, our producers. For John Bailey, our engineer. And for co-host Sarah Whitmire, I'm Bob Zaltzberg. Thanks for listening.